So Guerrero used to say one fighter with a sharp stick, nothing left to lose can take the day. They've no idea we're coming. They've no reason to expect us. If we can make it to the ground, we'll take the next chance. And the next. On and on until we win. Or the chances are spent. This is for our love of a galaxy far, far away. It's a galaxy as big as our imaginations, or as close as a member of the family. This is Forever Star Wars. Hello there. When it was announced that the Disney acquisition of Lucasfilm would give us a new Star Wars movie every year for the foreseeable future, it seemed too good to be true. What did they have in mind to fill in the years between the saga films? The answer was an anthology of various standalone movies, the first of which was a concept originally pitched by visual effects supervisor John Knoll. Rogue One, as it would be called, was an idea Noel had years earlier which would tell the story of the band of rebels who stole the plans to the Death Star, the same mission that's described in the opening crawl of Episode 4, A New Hope. Welcome to Episode 8 of Forever Star Wars. I'm your host, Mark Marquis. Throughout this series, I've spotlighted the original trilogy and key scenes and characters throughout the franchise that have had an impact on me. But I've been thinking a lot about the new movies we've gotten since the new Star Wars Renaissance kicked off back in 2015. I have four films to add to my library of Star Wars, and although I don't like to rank them, some have caught my imagination in more ways than others. I made the comment on Twitter recently that ranking Star Wars movies was like trying to create a ranking for puppies or kittens or baby otters. The movies at the bottom of my list aren't necessarily the ones I don't like, but the ones at the top are there because they affect me the most, or have stories that I want to revisit the most often. Out of the most recent Star Wars films, Rogue One is the movie I keep coming back to. I'm hesitant to say that it's the best because that's such a subjective qualifier. Is it the most fun? No. Is it the most entertaining? Not exactly. So why do I hold it in such high esteem? Let's revisit Rogue One together and find out why. Rogue One broke with tradition by dispensing with the opening crawl. The crawl has been associated with Star Wars since the beginning. The rough cut of the original Star Wars didn't have a crawl, but when George showed the film to his director friends, including Spielberg and Coppola, they suggested that the movie needed some kind of exposition in the beginning to help explain the universe. Lucas turned to film designer Dan Perry, who suggested a title crawl similar to the opening of the 1939 Cecil B. DeMille film, Union Pacific. Another influence, of course, which tied in with the film's pulp origins was Flash Gordon. The crawl has announced the main plot of every Star Wars saga film released between 1977 and 2017. 
But when Disney acquired Lucasfilm, they announced an ambitious plan to deliver more than just saga films. They were going to make standalone films too, called anthologies. They decided to simplify them and call them Star Wars stories. The studio and creators wanted these films to stand apart from the saga and have their own distinctive feel. They needed to connect to the larger universe of stories and characters, but not in a way that would confuse the public. So a choice was made to dispense with the opening crawl, as that would identify a new Star Wars movie as part of the Skywalker saga. Rogue One was the first standalone, and therefore the first major theatrical release, not counting the Clone Wars movie, which did not contain an opening crawl. But it does have something that serves the same purpose. What is it you want? The work has stalled. I need you to come back. I won't do it, Krennic. We were on the verge of greatness. We were this close to providing peace and security for the galaxy. You're confusing peace with terror. Well, we have to start somewhere. A lot of fans will disagree, but I really don't miss the crawl. Granted, I was expecting something in this place. And I think the choice made for Solo a Star Wars story was the right one. It was that blue title card in the front, the sort of like a long time ago, repurposed to provide the opening exposition. But I think Rogue One does a fine job of bringing the audience up to speed at the start of the film. And I consider the prologue of Rogue One to be that film's stand-in for a crawl. It's easy to forget, but Lucasfilm and Disney were taking an enormous risk with Rogue One. There has been an awakening. Have you felt it? The Force Awakens smashed records and proved that audiences were hungry for more. But would they turn out for something that was only marginally connected to the episodic films, and with no Skywalkers, no Jedi? The main characters were mostly new, aside from Saul Guerrera, who migrated from the animated series The Clone Wars. There was something compelling about these new characters, something different about this cast. From the instant the actors were announced, it was clear that this would be one of the most diverse groups of actors ever assembled for a Star Wars film. And speaking for myself, that was something I found fresh and exciting. I think that helped me bond with them so easily from the start. Each of these new characters has varying amounts of screen time. They're each given his or her moment to stand out, and it makes revisiting them all the more rewarding. Although it dovetails nicely into the start of A New Hope, Rogue One's story is mostly self-contained. It's not part of a trilogy. It's just one moment in time, and new characters who find themselves in that moment. You failed, Your Highness. I am a Jedi, like my father before me. Star Wars is a series about the Skywalker family, but Rogue One is the first attempt to tell a story on the same scale, but based on events not directly tied to the Skywalkers. Its cast of characters present us with new and familiar archetypes, villains, rebels, imperials, many of which are colored in shades of gray, a departure from the black and white good versus evil of the original trilogy. Instead of focusing solely on the conflict between the light and the dark, the rebellion and the empire, the movie shows conflict as it occurs between people on the same side of the fight at odds with one another. The idea for this movie originated from the first words in 1977's opening crawl, 
but it has much larger aspirations than just filling in backstory. It seeks to expand the narrative possibilities of antagonist and protagonist archetypes, and how each side deals with opposing forces from outside and from within their own ranks. I was about to leave. I came as fast as I could. I have to get back on board. Walk with me. Back to Jeddah? They'll leave without me. Easy. You have news from Jeddah. Come on. One of the first heroes we meet is a rebel intelligence officer named Cassian Andor, played by Diego Luna. He's meeting an informant who has news of an Imperial pilot's defection on the moon of Jeddah. What's great about Cassian's introduction is how it wastes no time challenging our preconceived ideas about the good guys. We're used to seeing the Rebel Alliance in a certain light, but in this dark, dirty, claustrophobic alleyway, we witness a shocking, if pragmatic, act of cold-bloodedness. What's all this? Come on, let's see some scat docs. Yeah, of course. My gloves. <laughs> No! What have you got? Troopers down. Section 9. Are you crazy? I'll never climb out of here on my arm! Get out of the way! Oh! Oh! Calm down. Calm down. We'll be alright. A New Hope opens with the Tantive IV being captured by the Empire and the Rebels trying to win Princess Leia enough time to protect the stolen Death Star plans. But we never actually got to see how desperate and terrified the Rebellion was in the time before those plans were stolen. And we were never shown the kind of moral complexity that must have been essential in organizing an effective Rebel alliance. Rogue One changed all of that with the introduction of Cassian. His work in intelligence required him to make difficult choices to protect the cause and you can see the moral anguish in his face as soon as he's pulled the trigger, silencing his informant. Cassian is the everyman. He isn't a dashing lead. He's damaged and haunted by what he's done for the cause. But he's also extremely sympathetic, due in no small part to the immense likability of Diego Luna. I was really looking for someone who had something else to offer rather than the default, this is what a leading guy is, you know, in terms of the cliche especially in tough action roles. I'm not a fan of heroes that stand in the corner and just brood, and that makes them cool. And Diego gets high score for likability. You just want to be his mate the second you see him. Gareth was always, since pretty early in the process, he said, you are my choice. It felt fantastic. I was the happiest man in Mexico, probably. I gotta admit, I mean, Cassian, I will always have a soft spot to have someone of his particular heritage on the screen. You know, my name's Pablo Hidalgo. Having someone like Diego Luna embody a Star Wars character is like, hey, we haven't really had that much before. So that's kind of great. I know we have a lot of fans in Mexico who do appreciate that. In other Star Wars movies, Cassian would be a background character, one of those faces standing behind Leia or Luke or next to Han. But Rogue One takes these unsung heroes and brings them to the center stage along with all of their baggage. Jen, come here. Remember, whatever I do, I do it to protect you. So you understand? I understand. I love you, Stardust. I love you too, Papa. Galen. We meet Jen and her family at the start of the movie. 
Family is a thread that runs throughout the heart of the saga, and family, or the longing for it, defines each hero. In the original trilogy, Luke loses his family and discovers the truth about his origins. His desire to know his true parents and the revelation that Darth Vader is his father and that the Princess of Alderaan is his sister define the kind of man he becomes. In the prequel trilogy, Anakin Skywalker is raised in the Jedi Order. The Jedi become his family when he leaves his mother behind, but that choice will come to haunt him and shape his destiny. And finally, in the sequel trilogy, Rey's longing for her parents and for a place where she belongs defines the friendships she makes when she leaves Jakku. Finn, Han, Leia, Chewie, and even Luke become Rey's found family. But Jin Erso knew her family. She had loving parents who were ripped from her by circumstances beyond her control. And she spent a lifetime having to take care of herself because all the parental figures in her life had either died, been taken away, or abandoned her as Saul Guerrera did. She became hardened by loss, but slowly, over the course of the film, she comes to understand the sacrifices her father made on her behalf. So what is it that you want, Jen? They wanted an introduction, they've got it. I'm out now. The rest of you can do what you want. You care not about the cause. The cause? Seriously. The Alliance, the the rebels, whatever it is you're calling yourself these days. All it's ever brought me is pain. You can stand to see the Imperial flag rain across the galaxy. It's not a problem if you don't look up. Jen Urso, played by the talented Felicity Jones, has spent so long looking after herself and trying to survive she doesn't believe she has the luxury of political affiliations. She keeps her head low so as to not draw suspicion. But when she receives a desperate message from her father, her understanding of his choices and his love for her give Jin a whole new perspective on the galaxy and the links Galen was willing to go to to save it. This change of heart comes into conflict, however, with Cassian. When he first meets her, Jen is merely their contact to get them in to see Saw Gerrera and the defector pilot named Bodhi Rook. Jen's apathy for the rebel cause is obvious until she receives a message from Galen Urso, a message that no one else can corroborate, and suddenly she's demanding that they act on her father's information. For someone like Cassian, who has literally been shaped by the war he's been fighting all his life, this kind of fair-weather idealism is insulting. What do you know? We don't all have the luxury of deciding when and where we want to care about something. Suddenly the rebellion is real for you. Some of us live it. I've been in this fight since I was six years old. You're not the only one who lost everything. Some of us just decided to do something about it. You can't talk your way around this. This is some of the best acting and dialogue I've ever seen in Star Wars. It's such good stuff. The conflict between these two characters is laid out efficiently in the scenes leading up to this pivotal moment. They may be on the same side, but they aren't fighting for the same reasons. And these are the kinds of divisions that keep a fledgling rebellion from becoming a full-scale movement. It's this sort of rift that caused Saw Gerrera to break away from the Alliance and go his own way. 
it threatens to tear the rebellion apart before they ever score their first successful hit against the Empire. Ultimately, Jin and Cassian come to realize that they are fighting for the same thing, and working together will be the only path to victory. You met Kato? Charming. He tends to say whatever comes into his circuits. It's a byproduct of the reprogram. Why does she get a blaster and I don't? We've met feisty droids before, but not one like K2SO. Voiced and performed by Alan Tudyk using motion capture, K2 is an Imperial KX series security droid that was captured and reprogrammed by the Rebellion. While his allegiance may have changed, there was no erasing that attitude. K2 basically says anything that's on his mind. Unlike a protocol droid like 3PO, K2 has no time for pleasantries or etiquette. If he doesn't like you, he doesn't waste any time letting you know it. I'm surprised you're so concerned with my safety. I'm not. I'm just worried they might miss you and hit me. Doesn't sound so bad to me. For a film as dire and urgent as Rogue One, K2 provides some of the film's lighter and much-needed humor. You're letting her keep it. Would you like to know the probability of her using it against you? It's high. Let's get going. It's very high. Tudyk was unwittingly providing a lot of the humor off-camera as well. His motion capture suit, along with the crude K2 head positioned on a stick above him, became the source of mockery among the crew and actors. <laughs> Here it comes. It's so awful. And then this telescoping head that comes out of the top, and it's just true, it's just a piece of, of uh, poster board with a really rudimentary K2 face. I mean, this has come from ILM. Diego said, Alan, it's amazing how little respect you have on this set right now. Tudyk has impeccable comic timing, so it's no wonder he was able to bring K2 to life. And it's not the first time he's portrayed a robot of artificial intelligence. He also provided motion capture for the movie iRobot. He has a keen understanding of physicality and brought that skill to the depiction of the Imperial droid. And it always worked better and it transferred better if there was more of a personality in his movement. K2 walks down a hallway and is passed by another K2 model that's in the Empire and hasn't been freed by a reprogram like K2 was. He's like a soldier and he's walking very perfectly and very straight and upright. And then K2 is kind of sort of loping along a little bit. I think that's what makes K2 a little bit more accessible and gosh, I'm going to say it lovable. His brain for the door to open. It bothers him because he knows it's possible. Base <laughs> Morbus was once the most devoted guardian of us all. I'm beginning to think the Force and I have different priorities. Relax, Captain. We've been in worse cages than this one. This is a first for me. There is more than one sort of prison, Captain. I sense that you carry yours wherever you go. Chirrut and Baze, played by Donnie Yen and Xiang Wen, are the battle-hardened brothers-in-arms. Jetta City is a powder keg of violence waiting to blow. The Empire is there to strip its temples of kyber crystals for use in the Death Star's firing mechanism. The temples, long since empty, are presided over by the remnants of Jetta's past. 
Chirrut and Bays once held important positions as guardians of the wills. Guardians looked after the Kyber temples and Jedi shrines, but now, with the temples stripped of their crystals, Bays and Chirrut are nothing more than street people, blending into the countless faces and shapes and species that roam the markets and alleyways of Jeddah City. But Chirrut, who is blind since birth, possesses a special sensitivity that helps him read people, and he senses that Jen Urso is someone he wants to know. Trade that necklace for a glimpse into your future. Yes, I'm speaking to you. How did you know I was wearing a necklace? Well, that answer you must pay. What do you know about Kyber crystals? My father, he... He said they powered the Jedi's lightsabers. Jin, come on, let's go. The strongest stars have hearts of Kaiba. I don't think Chirrut has Force abilities, but he certainly seems to have sensitivity to the Force. He can read people from a distance. He seems to be able to sense auras surrounding individuals and can sense the dark side in people's intentions. Chirrut isn't a Jedi, or close to having the same connection to the Force as a Jedi, but he's proof that the everyday man or woman can have a special connection to that Force regardless. It's just a matter of belief. Jin's own mother, Lyra, also had a special belief. Trust the Force. Lyra and Chirrut believe so strongly in the Force that the belief itself gives them insight that non-believers lack. Then there is Bay's Malbus, Chirrut's best friend. He has lost his faith, likely after he saw what happened to the Jedi and the rise of the Empire. For some, it's difficult to believe in an all-powerful force that would allow such suffering and destruction. Even Chirrut's unwavering faith in the force is not enough to convince Baze. For Baze, it all comes down to luck and having someone who will watch your back. See Jedi? There are no Jedi here anymore. Only dreamers like this fool. The Force did protect me. I protected you. Booty, Rook, cargo pilot. Local boy, huh? Existachi, troublesome Norton Mitaka. I can hear you. You didn't capture me, I came in myself. I defected. I defected. Every day, more lies. Lies? Would I risk everything for a lie? I, no, we don't have time for this. I have to speak to Saul Guerrero before he can do this. Bodhi Rook, the defecting Imperial cargo pilot played by Riz Ahmed, is the film's most unlikeliest of heroes. Proving that heroes really can come from anywhere, Ahmed plays him with a fidgeting, nervous energy that I enjoy watching quite a bit. Suffering from a crisis of faith, Rook began questioning his commitment to the Empire and what it stood for. He was native to Jeddah, so the Empire's occupation and strip mining of his homeworld likely played a part in his misgivings. When Galen Urso met Bodhi Rook, he saw an opportunity and encouraged his feelings of dissent by telling Bodhi that he could find redemption in helping to smuggle a secret message to Saul Guerrera. Although we never saw Galen and Bodhi's interactions for ourselves, their relationship is implied by Bodhi's unwavering devotion to Galen and to do right by him. Your father, he said I could get right by myself. He said I could make it right if I was brave enough 
listen to wars in my heart. Do something about it. Bodhi is a character who was given more scenes when Rogue One underwent its massive reshoots, and it's obvious why. He's the most underdeveloped character in the story, and even with reshoots, I don't think he was given enough time to fully develop. But Riz Ahmed is such fun to watch all the same. Ahmed went above and beyond what he needed to do to land the role. He sent audition after audition, sometimes doing multiple takes of the same few lines so that director Gareth Edwards would have no doubt that he was the right actor for the job. And it obviously left an impression. Uh, Can you just bluff your way through? Riz filmed himself. He was in New York. Like, he did a little thing of, like, this is how Bodhi could be. Ha! What did I tell you? And then obviously then I started kind of, the obsession starts where you start sending, like doing 50,000 takes of something because you left your own devices. Uh, can you not just bluff your way through? What? You cannot be serious. Well, yeah, I mean, you're a spy, do you a spy thing? Hmm? And then he was like, great, we've got what we need. But I didn't stop there. I just carried on recording more takes and just emailing him. I was like, screw it, I've got his email address now. You're a spy, do you a spy thing? He could be like this. Or he could be like this, or he could be like this. And it was like, okay, anyway, you've got you've got the part, and then got another like eight clips saying all this, all this, all this, all this, all this. Okay, what did I tell you? What did I tell you? I was like, okay, I've kind of totally, totally screwed this up now. I'm like spamming the director. General Skywalker, at your service. This is General Kenobi, Commander Tano and Captain Rex. We're looking forward to taking a fight to those scrapping droids. Yes, all in good time. Saw. Saw Guerrera. He fashions himself as our leader, though no one elected him. Well, for now, we're in charge. And there is much to learn. Rogue One made a lot of us happy when it took a character previously established in the Clone Wars animated series and brought him into the modern movie canon. It was a logical decision because Saw epitomizes the idea of fighting what you hate instead of saving what you love. When he lost his sister Stila on Onderon, he lost any connection to family or love. Vengeance became his driving force. When the Confederacy of Independent Systems was defeated and the Republic became the Galactic Empire, he did what a lot of freedom fighters do, turned his focus on fighting a larger enemy. When your spirit has been forged by violence, it's not easy to give up. But years of fighting twisted and damaged Saw's mind. He became increasingly more violent and indiscriminate with his targets. The newly formed Rebel Alliance quickly realized Saw was more liability than asset and cut its ties with him. This emboldened Saw to pursue his darker impulses and he formed an underground terrorist cell called the Partisans and set up their camp on the moon of Jeddah. But Saw remained a thorn in the side of Mon Mothma. You are going to lose. I will not be lectured on military strategy by a man who has proven himself a criminal. The Empire considers both of us criminals. At least I act like one. You target civilians. Kill those who surrender. Break every rule of engagement. If we degrade ourselves to the Empire's level, what will we become? There she is! That's the leader the Rebellion needs. Where is that fire, that passion, when your people need it most? I hope, Senator, after you've lost, and the Empire reigns over the galaxy, unopposed, you will find some comfort in the knowledge that you fought according to the rules. That's enough. What are you afraid of, Senator? 
the truth. Return to your duties. Saul had once been a trusted family friend of the Ursos, having smuggled them off Coruscant when Galen chose to abandon his work on the Death Star's weapons program. When Lyra was killed and Galen taken back to the Empire, Saw was there to rescue little Jen, and he raised her and taught her self-sufficiency until her identity as Galen's daughter began to threaten her safety and his many years later. He left her alone and disillusioned, and this choice damaged Jen's ability to trust anyone but herself. Saw and Jen's stories are rushed through in order to get on with the movie's main plot, but there's some wonderful ideas in there. The trust that was damaged when Saw left is something Jen has been struggling with, She became isolated and withdrawn from others, which is why each new person she meets in this film is unique in helping her repair the broken trust she experienced with Saw. As for Saw, he's too far gone. Instead of apologizing or trying to make amends, Saw questions the timing of Jen's arrival on Jeddah. Forrest Whitaker brings a ragged, unhinged quality to the character that literally dominates every scene he's in. It's a trap, isn't it? What? The pilot! The message! All of it! Did they send you? Did you come here to kill me? There's not much of me left. In many ways, Saw is an echo of Vader, more machine than man where Vader is encased in a cybernetic husk due to his obsession with power and control, Saw's humanity is chipped away piece by piece by his hunger for revenge. His single-mindedness was partially forged by the Jedi when they came to Onderon to provide aid in fighting the Separatist occupation, but like the Jedi, he is but a ghost of his former self. A lifetime spent fighting has compromised Saw's body and maddened his spirit. His mind is given to bouts of obsession and paranoia. Like Vader, his body has been invaded by machines necessary to keep him alive. There's a subtle reference in the movie that might provide a clue as to how Saul lost his mind. It might have something to do with the pet he keeps. Poor Gully. Poor Gully. Ah, poor Gullet. How could I do a retrospective about Rogue One without mentioning the infamous Boar Gullet? The quivering, tentacled curiosity that Saw keeps in his hideout is quite controversial. Poor Gullet can feel your thoughts. No lie is safe. It's basically a slug-like cephalopod that can read minds with its tentacles. What have you really brought me? Cargo pilot. Which makes for the most unique interrogation scene in the Star Wars universe. Borgullet will know the truth. The unfortunate side effect is that one tends to lose one's mind. Okay, I admit, this is a really weird scene. Even for Star Wars. I've talked to a lot of people who say this is the worst thing in the movie. I just don't see it. I guess I accept this scene because Boar Gullet is the kind of freaky strange you might find in Jabba's palace. If you think this is weirder than, say, Salacious Crumb or Sice Noodles, I don't know what to tell you. You're a hard man to find, Galen. But farming. Really? 
Man of your talents? It's a peaceful life. It's lonely, I imagine. Galen Urso, played by Mads Mikkelsen, is the Dr. Oppenheimer of the movie. He spent much of his career developing this project under the false pretense that it would be used as a new energy source to improve the lives of citizens of the Empire. By the time he realized that his work was helping to create a terrifying weapon of mass destruction, it was too late. He was in too deep, and the only option was to take his family and flee. His recapture on Lamu is what sets the story of Rogue One in motion. Galen helps an Imperial pilot defect and take with him a holographic message for his daughter Jen. It's a message that Galen hopes will repair the trust that a lifetime apart has nearly destroyed. We call it the Death Star. There is no better name, and the day is coming soon when it will be unleashed. I've placed a weakness deep within the system, a flaw so small and powerful they will never find it. But Jen, Jen, if you're listening, my beloved, so much of my life has been wasted. I try to think of you only in the moments when I'm strong because the pain of not having you with me, your mother, our family, the pain of that loss is so overwhelming I risk failing even now. It's just so hard not to think of you. Think of where you are. Jen's knees buckle and she falls to the ground at the sound of her father's confession. The years of resentment and detachment melt away, and she's the little girl on Lamu, trusting her papa because he asked it of her, and also of her forgiveness. This incredibly powerful, intimate moment takes place while the Death Star looms over Jeddah, its shadow casting a long, ominous pall over the landscape. It blocks the sun like an eclipse, and its terrible laser weapon takes out Jeddah City and tens of thousands of its residents all while a father desperately hopes to pass on the only thing he can offer his daughter now, a chance to destroy this weapon. So, the reactor module, that's the key. That's the place I've laid my trap. It's well hidden and unstable. One blast to any part of it will destroy the entire station. You'll need the plans, the structural plans for the Death Star to find the reactor. I know there's a complete engineering archive in the data vault at the Citadel Tower on Scarif. Any pressurized explosion to the reactor module will set off a chain reaction that will destroy the entire station. This movie is constantly juggling small and personal moments with larger epic visuals. Life and death plays out in the lives of the protagonists, even as the more expansive visual metaphors for apocalyptic destruction loom overhead. Save the rebellion! Save the dream! Saul Guerrero was forged in the fires of war with the help from the Jedi, so it's fitting that his final resting place would be among the fallen ruins of the Jedi faith, swept away by the merciless strength of the Galactic Empire. Rogue One takes a bold step in connecting to the events of the timeline of A New Hope. No story involving the Death Star would be complete without the inclusion of Governor Willif Tarkin. With the blessing of the Peter Cushing estate, ILM attempted to achieve the holy grail of special effects, digitally recreating a photorealistic human being on screen. Actor Guy Henry provided the voice and motion capture. Were they successful? It depends a lot on how sensitive you are to the uncanny valley. 
Most unfortunate about the security breach on Jeddah, Director Krennic. After so many setbacks and delays, and now this. The Uncanny Valley is a term which defines the challenge facing any artist or engineer trying to artificially recreate a convincing human likeness. Our species evolved a pretty sophisticated pattern of recognition when it comes to the human face. It's one of the first skills babies learn, the ability to read faces. We're hardwired to know what is a human face and what is not. When something is close to human but not quite, it produces a repellent reaction in most observers. Animatronics and computer animation are the two fields which attempt to produce human faces, and these typically produce that not-quite-human feeling in many of us. It's usually around the eyes, or even in the way the mouth moves. Everything appears to be correct, but it still registers as false. Personally, I'm not entirely convinced by the digital recreation of Cushing. It's almost perfect, but there's just enough of it that feels off, but only a little. However, I've spoken to several people about this, and it turns out the opinions are all across the spectrum. My parents, who had no knowledge of the effects work that went into bringing this character back to life, had no clue that there was a digital human in the movie. But for a lot of people, the uncanny valley got in the way. Having foreknowledge of the effects work of the scenes appears to have played some part in acceptance or rejection of the final product. But even though I can see the strings, so to speak, the Tarkin scenes are still pretty wonderful. Tarkin feels right in his scenes with Krennic. Krennic's vice-like grip on his life's work opens him up to exploitation, and Tarkin seizes this opportunity with the kind of cunning he's known for. If the Senate gets wind of our project, countless systems will flock to the rebellion. When the battle station is finished, Governor Tarkin, the Senate will be of little concern. When has become now, Director Krennic, the Emperor will tolerate no further delay. You have made time an ally of the rebellion. I suggest we solve both problems simultaneously with an immediate test of the weapon. Failure will find you explaining why to a far less patient audience. I will not fail. When Krennic storms out, the scene cuts to a close-up that's my favorite Tarkin shot in the movie. He grinds his jaw to stifle a smirk before turning back to survey the installation of the Death Star's firing dish. It's in this moment that the ILM team, along with Guy Henry, deliver a flawless Tarkin. Target Jetta City, prepare single reactor ignition. We're in position, ready. Fire! Commence primary ignition. Director Orson Krennic is played by Ben Mendelsohn. He's a new kind of Imperial officer. Krennic, adorning an audacious cape and regal white uniform, is the epitome of naked ambition. He shares a history with Galen Erso, having been schoolmates in their youth. But Galen, like everybody else in Krennic's life, is only a means to an end. And that end is always to obtain more power and recognition. He's the ultimate entrepreneur. His life's work has been to achieve the notoriety he feels due for helping craft the most powerful weapon the Empire has ever produced. Across millions of light years, decades of trial and error, and more than a few disastrous setbacks, Krennic has always found a way to work every complication to his advantage. But as the project nears completion, with the retrieval of Galen Erso out of exile years earlier, Orson Krennic found it more and more difficult to hold on to the reins of power. Governor Tarkin has his sights set on taking over the Death Star project, and with it, all its accolades. 
We stand here amidst my achievement, not yours! I'm afraid the recent security breaches have laid bare your inadequacies as a military director. The breaches have been filled. Jeddah has been silenced. You think this pilot acted alone? He was dispatched from the installation on Edo. Galen Erso's facility. Krennic's life work is his own self-advancement, and the Death Star is his ticket straight to the top of the Empire. This tension within the Imperial ranks turns Krennic into a cornered animal, and nothing is more dangerous to the heroes than a cornered animal that will do anything to survive. On the red-hot cinder world of Mustafar, surrounded by rivers of lava, sheathed in mountains of steam, stands the imposing spire of Vader's castle. The castle was a concept originally pitched for The Empire Strikes Back and designed by Ralph McQuarrie. It's a joy to finally see it made canon. Mustafar is a fitting place for Vader to call home. Mustafar represents hell. It's the place where Anakin lost Padme. Its landscape is one of destruction and rebirth, suffering and power. Mustafar is Vader. A shadow announces the arrival of the Dark Lord. His silhouette creeps up the far wall, as iconic as Indiana Jones' shadow with his trademark fedora in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Darth Vader's entrance reminds me of another famous movie star, Bela Lugosi in the 1931 film Dracula. In both films, a visitor stands small amidst the horrifying architecture and then they're joined by their towering host, whose presence summons immediate feelings of dread. I delivered the weapon the Emperor requested. I deserve an audience to make certain that he understands its remarkable potential. Its power to create problems has certainly been confirmed. A city destroyed, an Imperial facility openly attacked, Governor Tarkin suggested the test. You were not summoned here to grovel, Director Krennic. No, it's... There is no Death Star. The Senate has been informed that Jeddah was destroyed in a mining disaster. Yes, my lord. I expect you not to rest until you can assure the Emperor that Galen Erso has not compromised this weapon in any way. The Empire has this kind of power. What chance do we have? What chance do we have? The question is what choice? Run, hide, plead for mercy, scatter your forces. You give way to an enemy this evil with this much power and you condemn the galaxy to an eternity of submission. The time to fight is now. Yes. Every moment you waste is another step closer to the ashes of Jeddah. Jin grew up just trying to survive by not getting involved. She'd been hurt by the loss of her parents and resigned herself to the belief that she couldn't rely on anyone else. But now, she has reconnected with her father and understands the sacrifices he made for her and the galaxy's citizens. It has ignited a fire in her and made her a believer. The Rebel Alliance, however, is mired in politics. Jin's speech inspires some of the Rebels to ignore the politics and take a risk for something greater, 
a chance to strike a blow against the Empire's looming threat. Rogue One assembles a group of new characters, all meeting each other for the first time, and then places them in a dangerous mission to conclude the film. For a large cast, which can only highlight each character for a limited time, the movie manages to make the most of each character's interaction. So by the time the group bands together on their secret mission to steal the Death Star plans, we're invested in their success and survival. Some of the characters, like Bodhi, don't get as much screen time as they should, but I'm impressed at how economically their character arcs are handled. And the finale, which features the battle to steal the plans, is one of the best third acts of any Star Wars. Actually, it might be my favorite third act of them all. And that's truly saying something when it comes to 40 plus years of Star Wars. Director Gareth Edwards and writers Witta, Weitz, and Gilroy paid attention to how George Lucas constructed some of the epic battles in the original and prequel trilogies, and they designed a third act for Rogue One that pulled out all the stops. The climax occurs in orbit, on the beaches, and inside the towering citadel. The stakes in each location grow increasingly more desperate as it builds towards its apex. Blue Squadron, get to the surface before they close that gate! Copy you, Admiral. Blue Squadron, on me! Copy, Blue Leader. Copy, Blue Leader. We won't have long. The fight in space involves the Rebel fleet, engaging the Empire in its first full-scale attack of the Galactic Civil War. The planet Scarif is protected by a massive force field, with the only way in or out through a circular aperture resembling a giant yawning portal. The Rogue One team managed to get down to the planet's surface in a stolen cargo shuttle piloted by the former Imperial Bodhi Rook. On the surface, a second battle on the ground ensues to keep the Empire's attention focused on the beaches and away from their installation, where Jin, Cassian, and K2, disguised as Imperials, sneak in to steal the plans. I've got a bad feeling about it. Hey. Quiet. What? At this point, the movie plays out like many heist films. Each team member has the role to play. K2 buys Jin and Cassian some time as they attempt to download the Death Star plans in the adjacent chamber. Kay. Climb! Climb! You can still send the plans to the fleet. If they open the shield gate, you can broadcast from the tower. Locking the vault door now. Kay. Goodbye! Kay. The droid is the first to give his life for the mission but he won't be the last. A master switch is responsible for activating the communications tower, but the troop responsible for activating it is under fire. The troop includes Chirrut and Baze. Chirrut summons his strength and belief in the force and steps out into the line of fire, trusting that the force will guide him to the switch. I'm one with the force, the force is with me. I'm one with the force, the force is with me. His faith is rewarded by finding and activating the switch, but an explosion takes him out. Chirrut's death inspires Baze to go out in a blaze of glory as he unleashes all his grief on the death troopers while honoring his best friend's belief in the force.
best friends die in battle together. They found the Death Star plans. They have to transmit them from the communications tower. You have to take down the shield gate. It's the only way they're going to get them through. Call up a Hammerhead Corvette. I have an idea. Stand by, Rogue One. We're on it. This is for you, Caleb. With the master switch activated, Bodhi manages to patch into the comm tower. But just as he does, the Imperials throw a grenade into the shuttle. This movie isn't messing around. One by one, the team falls like dominoes, and with each consecutive loss, it becomes clear that with the stakes so high, only sacrifice will win the day. Sacrifice is a concept that the other movies touched upon, but not to this degree. When Jin and Cassian transmit the plans, the music is somber. There's no rebel fanfare, no triumphant march of horns to herald the rebellion's success, because this isn't a movie about the beginnings of the original trilogy. It's a movie about the end of lives. Admiral, receiving transmission from Scarif. The end of a single mission. The film has been building to the moment that the Death Star plans are delivered into the hands of the rebel fleet. But in the final minutes of the battle, we're thinking about Jen and Cassian. Even as the Death Star emerges out of hyperspace, we're thinking about Jen and Cassian. Leaning on each other for support, they make it to the tower's elevator and begin the long descent down, taking a moment to consider one another. But this isn't going to be a proclamation of love or a romantic embrace. A conventional film might fall back on something so pedestrian. Instead, the look Jen and Cassian exchange is one of a shared fate and a future of possibilities, whether it be friendship, allies, or more, is a future they no longer can claim as Tarkin orders the weapon to target the base with a single reactor. We're thinking about Jim and Cassian. The sound of the superlaser is distant, almost an afterthought. The music stands out a bit more. With its bittersweet melody and choir of voices, the mood is one of reverence. Rogue One, may the Force be with you. We're honoring the ultimate sacrifice of the heroes. Jin and Cassian see the fireball on the horizon. They know there won't be a last-minute reprieve or a miracle to swoop in and save them. They sit together and share a final moment, knowing that it was trust that brought them here. Trust that made their mission a success. Trust that their transmission was received. The movie could have ended here, on this note of self-sacrifice, but it continues. We follow the plans as they're sent to the crippled Mon Calamari flagship. We see the crew desperately wait for the files to upload into the storage disk, then grab the disk and bolt down the hallway towards the hatch door. They know their time is short. They must know what's coming. The Empire dispatched a shuttle, and it's now a game of time. But the hatch is jammed, blocking the crew's escape. That's when they hear it. The boarding party has arrived. But this is an enemy none of these men have ever faced. Oh 
The black figure's saber fills the hallway with red light as it slashes and hacks through the men with horrific ease. A powerful force tosses aside panicked soldiers like ragdolls, pins them to the ceiling where they remain until sliced clean in half. Darth Vader's fury unleashed. It's something fans never thought they'd see. Rebel soldiers taking the full brunt of the Sith Lord's anger. The night I went to see Rogue One a second time, I was lined up outside the theater exit, waiting for the previous showing to let out. When it did, two men in their 20s stumbled out in shock, laughing and exchanging looks of astonishment. I knew why they were leaving the movie in a state of euphoria. A lot of us did. After an incredible third act where we'd seen spectacular action sequences, a massive space battle, a tense ground battle, and each one of the central characters giving their lives for the mission. The Vader scene was almost too good to be true. Audience left the movie on a high, and for some of us, that high never went away. Rogue One not only gave us the backstory of how the Death Star plans ended up in the hands of the Rebellion, it told the story of the man who helped build it, and gave it the crucial design flaw as his last act of defiance in order to make the galaxy a better place for his family. Rogue One showed us that daughter's love for her father and her willingness to match his valor with her own. They believed in something greater than themselves, that freedom and justice could return, the Empire could be defeated through bravery and devotion and cooperation. Above all else, they gave the galaxy the best reason to continue the fight. The transmission we received. What is it they've sent us? Help. We've reached the end of Episode 8. I hope you found something new to appreciate about Rogue One. What is your experience with this movie? Do you think the reshoots made it the best film it could be? Or do you think it suffers from a lack of character development? Did I miss something important in my coverage that you'd like to hear in a future episode? Send any and all questions to ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com for more analysis and insight into just about anything under the sun related to Star Wars. Check out our website at www.clashingsabers.net. If you hit the subscribe button, you can keep up with future episodes of Forever Star Wars whenever they drop, and you'll also get a lot of other great shows on the Clashing Sabers network. If you're a fan of the books, Brandon and Lindsay's show, Don't Burn the Sacred Text, is a must. And for shippers, Ash's Starships covers some fun topics and has some great guest hosts from time to time. Last but not least, if you're enjoying this series or any other on the Clashing Sabers network, please take just a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. The review could be simple and short, or you could write us an essay about what you like about the show or how we might improve in the future. We'd really appreciate it. I'll catch up with you soon. Take care. The views and commentary of Forever Star Wars do not reflect those of Lucasfilm or Disney. All licensed sound and music are property of their respective copyright holders. Clashing Sabers and Forever Star Wars are not affiliated with Lucasfilm, Disney, or any of their subsidiaries. The commentary and production of this series is the property of Clashing Sabers and Forever Star Wars and may only be used with permission. Until next time, may the Force be with you. And always remember, Your focus determines your reality.